I want you to imagine with me that you get a text message from your boss at work, um, and your boss is not being mean, but he has given you some unedited feedback about your work performance. Are you with me? And you're reading it, you're scrolling through the message, and there's some fantastic stuff there. But there's also some stuff, it's hard to take, it's hard to read. And as you're scrolling through reading this text message from your boss, you see it. This is a group message. This is a group text. He's included all your coworkers on this message. Who's excited to go to work on Monday? <laughs> At some level, to some degree, that must have been what it was like for the very first people to ever read the New Testament book, and really it's better understood as a letter, the New Testament letter of Revelation. Now, when we think about Revelation, understandable, we might think about some really fantastic imagery. Maybe we think of end of the world type stuff, the kind of things that maybe you would see in a dystopian movie. But the very first people to ever read or ever hear the letter of Revelation were a collection of seven, seven different churches who received it as a personal message from Jesus to them. Now, if you have never read the book of Revelation and you want to start now, let me warn you, it might feel like the author, you know, took some uh, past expiration date cold medicine before he wrote it. It's a little trippy. It's a unique writing style that we call apocalyptic literature, and that means it has all kinds of symbolism in it, and there are really some specific rules that you have to understand to know how to properly interpret apocalyptic literature. And if you don't know those things, which is okay, but if you don't know those things, it's going to feel really confusing. But the whole point of the book of Revelation, the purpose behind it is really simple, really straightforward. Number one, Jesus is God and King. Number two, it is encouragement and instruction to followers of Jesus who want to live for his kingdom while living in countries and cultures that oppose the kingship of Jesus. It shows that Jesus is sovereign over all of human history, and it reminds us that we will one day reign forever with him in heaven. And lastly, it's this, be devoted, don't be afraid. And so this incredibly important message from Jesus to seven churches, this, this personal message it's constructed a lot like a group text. These seven, uh, there, there are seven unique letters inside of Revelation chapter two and three, and they're all packaged together. And so each church is not only reading the message to them, but everybody gets to read everybody else's message from Jesus. And the question is, why would Jesus do it that way? Why not commission seven distinct personal letters uh, that are personalized for each of these seven churches? Well, maybe this will help. If you're a note taker, I want to ask you to write this down. The better we understand Jesus' message to other churches, the better we'll understand his message to our church. When we know what he wants to say to other churches also, we'll also better understand the, the kind of thing that he would want to say to us. And all these seven different letters that we're going to read together, when you take them together, they create a kind of church 101. That's why we're calling it Dear Church. And this is Jesus' heart to his church and the dominant New Testament imagery or symbol for the church is the bride of Jesus. And Jesus loves his bride. He loves his church. He loves every local church. And so we, we want to read it with that mindset. 
And so these seven churches, they, they all existed in what's now modern-day Turkey. You could actually go and visit these places. Uh, and so over the next seven weeks, we're going to read what Jesus' message is to each of these individual churches. These are not symbolic churches. They are real churches from the first century. They don't represent different time periods throughout history. So this is what I want us to do. I would love for you to grab a Bible or you could use your phone and go to this passage right here. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17. And if you're still kind of getting familiar with how the Bible is laid out, this is an easy one because Revelation is the very last book that you're going to find in the Bible. And today we're kicking off with the first letter. It's to a church in a town called Ephesus. And that technically begins, that letter technically begins chapter 2 verse 1. But there are a few verses at the end of chapter one that we need to read first so we can really understand. And so I'm going to start Revelation chapter one, verse 17. It says this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Let's give us some context. What's going on? The man who physically wrote this down is a guy named John, and he had a vision And what that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that he was just pretending. It does not mean that he was just using his imagination. In a very real sense, Jesus pulled back the curtain that separates our world from heaven so that John could see all of reality as it actually is. And that's scary, don't you think? If that happened to you, you'd fall out too. And so he fell down, he fainted. And then Jesus reaches down and places his hand on his right shoulder and says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. It says, I am the first and the last. Do you know what that statement is? That is Jesus saying, I am God. I am the boss. I am the authority. The symbolism of holding the keys of death and Hades, it's a way of saying that he is the one who is sovereign over life and death. Everybody is going to spend eternity somewhere, and Jesus is the only one who can give eternal life. But what I really want us to focus on is that Jesus, when John is afraid, Jesus reminds him of the resurrection. I was dead, but I'm alive forever and ever. And this is why this is important, because the resurrection defeats every cause for fear and heals every cause of grief. That no matter what kind of hard road we might have to walk in life individually or as a church, you know what? It always ends in victory. That's what the resurrection means. And so we got to read it through this life. Jesus is God and Jesus is King. And no matter what's coming next, no matter what we're going to read next, no matter what we're going to experience next, the resurrection defeats every fear. And the resurrection heals every grief. Write, therefore, based on that, write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what we're going to read has some symbolism to it, uh, but good news, we've got a symbolism cheat code here. The star equals the angel of the church. And you might be wondering, well, does that mean like a heavenly being kind of angel? Biblical scholars are divided. They disagree. This word was originally written in Greek, and the word literally means messenger. It can mean a kind of guardian angel that watches over a church. It could just as easily mean the pastor of that church or the point person who's responsible for delivering God's message to the church. 
And let's just be the kind of church that says it's totally okay for us to disagree. It's totally okay for us to say, I don't know. Smart, good-hearted people are divided on, over how to best understand that. But whichever one you may go with, it really doesn't have any impact at all on how we interpret this message from Jesus to the church. So don't let a lack of clarity derail you. And then this symbolism right here, lampstand, it just, super simple. Lampstand, every time you read it, it means church. So verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is walking among his churches. No matter what any church kind of road they're walking through, no matter what we are walking through, Jesus is walking with us. He hasn't forsaken us. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't abandoned us. He is with us. And that should be monumentally encouraging to our church and to every church. I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary yet. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place. What does lampstand mean? So this is what's at stake for the city of Ephesus. If they don't repent, Jesus is going to take away the church from the city. Let that settle in on us. Christians can be the reason that a city doesn't have a church and access to the gospel. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know, it's probably helpful for us as we're tearing into this letter that we understand the background on that church of, of Ephesus. It was a church that had a really brilliant beginning and a brilliant run of faithfulness. And this is a church that gets quite a bit of attention throughout the New Testament. We first read about them in Acts 19, and this is how the church got started. Um, Obviously, the New Testament letter of Ephesians is to the church at Ephesus. First and second Timothy are letters to the pastor at the church at Ephesus. And now uh, Revelation chapter two is a message from Jesus to what is the next generation of that church at Ephesus. And if you were to go back and read Acts chapter 19, this is what you're gonna discover. It was a radical life transformation when people left their old way of life to follow Jesus. And a bunch of the people who left their old way to follow Jesus, they were sorcerers. And they gave up all of that so that they could follow Jesus. And it says that when they, they came together to worship Jesus, they gathered all of their sorcery scrolls and they lit them on fire and they burned them up. And it was estimated they were worth about 50,000 drachmas. And we all know what a drachma is worth. 50,000 drachmas is the equivalent of about 136 years of a person's salary, average salary. So this church launched 
with people literally throwing away 136 years worth of salary so they could have Jesus instead. They were that wowed by Jesus. They were that compelled by the love of Jesus that they would literally incinerate a fortune because they treasured Jesus more. And this church would walk through a season and a series of intense persecution and they remained faithful and they had just a magnificent, a magnificent devotion to truth. Jesus message to them, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. This church is smart. They know scripture, they know theology, they know doctrine. Holiness is important to them. They have the ability to spot the difference between a truth and a lie, and they don't suffer frauds. Maybe you've heard me talk about this church before. They probably had former sorcerers on their elder board, right? So if you know any former sorcerers, you can nominate them to our elder board. They have former sorcerers on their elder board. These dudes could spot a false teacher from a mile away. You're not going to fool this church. And you're not going to intimidate this church. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. They are strong. They are tough. They cannot be intimidated. Sign me up. I want to be a part of a church like that. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent. Repent and do the things you did at first. How does that go wrong so quickly? How could a church be so right and yet be so wrong? Crawford Loritz is a pastor I think has a lot of great insight into this passage. One of the reasons I like to listen to Pastor Crawford Loritz is not just because he's such an insightful man, but when I listen to him, I get the sense that I'm listening to a man who has really been in the presence of God. And talking about this passage and talking about churches that would be like the church at Ephesus, he says this, some of us love what we do for Jesus more than we love Jesus. Christian performance, apart from the centrality of Jesus, will always mean legalism. Christian performance, apart from the centrality of Jesus, will always mean legalism. We are so arrogant sometimes and proud about how right we are. We worship our theology rather than the giver of our theology. This message from Jesus was a showstopper. It was stop, get honest, and do whatever it is you've got to do to come to terms with this message before you take another step. Now this message from Jesus was to one specific particular church, and yet Jesus thought it was worthwhile to make sure that every church would hear about it and read this message. And what was true of that church may not be true of our church. But I think we should respond just by reading it humbly. And by reading it humbly, that means acknowledging we're just as vulnerable to this kind of stuff as they were. Every church would be just as vulnerable to that as they were. So it's really important to me that you all hear me say this. We should not read this letter as though it is about Autumn Ridge. We should not read this and, necessar- we should not read this and think that Jesus is condemning us. What we should do, what we should do is receive it, recognizing that this is a loving and helpful word of caution 
to our church and to every church. And if we're going to receive it that way, it is worth our time just to pause and recognize what would it be like to be in a church of forsaken love? What is that experience like? How, would, how could we recognize, if ever that became true of us, how could we recognize that in ourselves? A church of forsaken love, they're impressed with themselves. This is a church that they say that they're special. This is a church that convinced that they're an exceptional church. This is a church that they just know in their heart, they're a notch above other churches. This is a church that values rules over wisdom. And the reason it does that probably is because it's elevated certainty over clarity, and that is almost always a problem. And one of the reasons that probably most of us are suckers for this, I think probably everybody everywhere is suckers for this, is because we just love defining who are the good people and who are the bad people by who does and does not follow my favorite rules. That the Christian life cannot be reduced to rules. The Christian life is about knowing and loving and humbly and joyfully submitting to the one who rules. Church of Forsaken Love, Knowing theology and scripture has become an end instead of the means. They've reduced the Bible to a textbook when they'd be better served as reading it the way lovers read a letter from one another. We study scripture for this reason, to better know Jesus. We study scripture to, to better know Jesus. And knowing scripture and knowing theology and knowing doctrine is so, so good as long as it is a means and not an end unto itself. We study scripture, we, we study theology in our pursuit of Jesus, to know Jesus, to grow our relationship with him as a way of receiving all that we need to be prepared for this incredible life that he's given us so that we can do the works that he's called us to do. A church of forsaken love believe it or not, turns the Bible into an idol. Church of Forsaken Love, they have, excuse, they have excuses for why they really don't have to love certain kinds of people, and it's really no coincidence that the people who they don't have to love are the people who are different than them. The people who they have excuses for not loving, these are the people who they think are wrong, and maybe they're right, maybe they are wrong. These are people who they don't understand. These are people who take just extra effort to love. And remember, Jesus said, what good is it if you love those who love you? What good is it if you love those who are easy to love? That's not a virtue. That's nothing to be proud of. Church of Forsaken Love, they are better at building walls than building bridges because they're convinced of all that they know. They don't see the point in trying to understand because they're convinced of all that they know. They don't see the value in investing and understanding others. And a church of forsaken love, they are quick to fight. And having courage is not the problem here. Courage is necessary. Having the ability to say, this is wrong, and this is right, and this is a lie, and this is true, and this is sin, and this is good. That, there's nothing wrong with that. We've got to be able to do that. The problem is, is they're treating people like an enemy. And people are not our enemies. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. So what is this church to do? What is any church who's ended up at the same place as them to do. Consider how far you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. Get honest and collapse on Jesus. Get honest and turn back and collapse on Jesus. If you do not repent, 
I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I don't know the time frame on this. I know that uh, no one is more patient than Jesus, but Jesus' patient does come with an expiration date. And at some point, he will disband and remove a church if that church is unloving, because an unloving church is that detrimental to the movement of the gospel. He says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What I want us to just pause and, and recognize is they are not commended for hating Nicolaitans, are they? They're commended for hating the practice of the Nicolaitans. Now, people want to know, who are the Nicolaitans? Well, nobody really knows for sure who they were. I happen to think they were Cowboys fans. <laughs> Love you, Pastor Otis. <laughs> whoever they were, whoever they were, they were trying to infiltrate the church. Whoever they were, they had wrong beliefs and bad behavior. I need you to hear me on this. It is loving, hear me on this, it is loving to have no love for wrong beliefs and bad behavior. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I love the way this ends, and if you really want to understand the punch of this symbolism, go read today, Revelation 21 and 22. This is the way it all ends. God's people are restored to him in heaven. It's a beautiful place, and right in the center is the tree of life, and we get to eat from that, and we receive unblemished, unending, beautiful, eternal life and communion in the unfiltered presence of God. So, of course, we're going to trust him. Of course, we're going to turn to him. Of course, we would repent and follow him if he is the one who gives us that so generously. But this is what I want us to zoom in on. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This line shows up in all seven letters to all seven churches. This is a the theme. And so this line right here is going to serve as the foundation for our series thesis, which is this. Knowing the truth doesn't change anything Submitting to the truth changes everything. Knowing the truth doesn't change anything. Submitting to the truth changes everything. We know that, don't we? Like, we know the difference between having a gym membership and going to the gym. Right? There's a gap. There's a gap between knowing and submitting. And so this is what I want us to do for the rest of our few minutes together. Everything we're going to do next is about closing the gap between knowing and submitting. And if you're a note taker and you write down what I say next, it might feel like a curveball, but if you hang with me for 20 seconds, I think you'll say, oh, I get what you're saying. There's a big difference between, but only a short trip from discernment to judgment. There's a big difference between, but only a short trip from discernment to judgment. Because this church lost their first love, they fell from being a discerning church to being a church of judgment. And if they would repent, and do what they did at first, they would move from being a church of judgment and be restored to being a church of discernment. Now, language isn't perfect. All words can have deep nuance, and a lot of words have multiple definitions. So let's talk about what we mean by discernment, and then after that, we're gonna talk about what we mean by judgment. This is part of discernment. Discernment is the ability to say, this is not good. It's just the ability to say, that's a sin, that's a lie, that's wrong, that's an evil, that's an injustice. Discerning people, discerning churches have to be able to do that. We have to do that. But what's going on under the hood? 
What's driving that? What's the framework that supports discernment? And it's this. This violates love for you. This isn't good. And I'm I'm gonna have to say, I'm gonna have to disagree with you and I'm gonna have to say that's wrong because this violates love for you. Not only does it violate love for you, it violates love for others, including me. I'm gonna have to say that's wrong. I can't agree with that. That's a lie, that's a sin, that's an error, that's an injustice. And it violates love for you, it violates love for others, but ultimately, it violates love for Jesus. In another lifetime, I was a pastor to high school students. And the teenagers who I was trying to disciple They had grown up in a culture that had convinced them that it's always wrong to say that someone is wrong. So how do you plant something like this in their hearts? So I asked them to imagine with me, you're going to a party, your best friend is your ride to the party and you don't have any other ride home except for your best friend. You get there and things are fine, but you didn't know there was gonna be drinking at the party. Your friend uh, gets hammered, he's well passed, well marinated, and the party's over and your friend who's drunk pulls the car up to the front door and is ready to drive you home. Are you getting in the car with your friend? No. They, that's right, that's a dad right there. <laughs> they all said, well, no, I'm not getting in the car. I said, of course you're not getting in the car. And not only would you not get in the car, you would do everything you could to keep your friend from driving. And not because you're judgmental, not because you're a jerk, not because you're mean, but because you are loving. And discerning people and a discerning church is sometimes gonna have to say this. Hey, this thing right here, that's wrong. And I'm gonna have to disagree with you. I'm I'm gonna have to say that that is wrong. And I might even... I might even have to stand against you. I might even have to actively work against you. But ultimately, it's driven because I love you. And I love others. And I love Jesus. That's truth and grace in action. And that's what Jesus did for us. He took on the humble role of a servant, of a slave. He took the extreme low position all the way to the point of not only living the perfect life, but sacrificing his life and his body on the cross to cover our sin. And then he rose from the dead to prove that he has power to forgive and offer new life. He stepped into our mess. We were the ones who were the wrong. And he says to us, I offer new life and I can bring you into the paradise with me. Repent. Because repentance and trusting in him is how we receive that. That's the gospel. And the gospel is the roadmap to being people. It's the roadmap to being a church of discernment. So what is judgment? Judgment is saying this is not good. On the outside, it looks identical to discernment. So why does it feel so different? Because this is what's going on under the hood. This is what's driving judgment. I disagree with you, and really, I think I'm a little bit better than you. I'm morally superior to you. I'm above you. This is not good, and now I'm afraid of you. This is not good, and because you're wrong, I don't think I have to love you. A discerning church has a posture of humility, courage, and love. A judgmental church has a posture of superiority, fear, and lovelessness. And here's the thing about discernment and judgment. 
Discernment pushes us closer. Judgment pulls us apart. Discernment pushes us closer. And here's why. Anything that's rooted in love and driven by love pushes us into greater unity, even if we don't always see eye to eye on everything. But anything that's rooted in fear and anger and pride and lovelessness is always going to tear us apart. So this is congregation participation point, all right? So you get, to, you get to vote along with me. I want you to raise your hands. Are you ready? All right. Which do we prefer? Being pushed closer together? Raise your hand. Greater unity, love, all that. Okay. Some of you are still deliberating. That's allowed. Who votes for? I think we should be pulled apart. Looking around. All right. No one. You've chosen wisely. So this is what we want to be. And we're in the point of the sermon where we're, where we're closing the gap between knowing and submitting. We're trying to align ourselves with what the truth is. I wonder, can we practice some discernment together right now? Can we do it together? Group exercise? Practicing discernment. We're going to ask the question, what is not good? And we're not going to be general and abstract. What we're talking about could be true of a lot of other churches, but let's just talk about some things that would probably be a helpful conversation for our church, for Autumn Ridge Church. And the two, two different things I want to talk about are rumors and racial tension. Over the past three years, our church has navigated the exact same thing that every other church in America has had to navigate, all kinds of changes and, and transition and unexpected things and uncertainty. We've also gone through changes in, in pastoral leadership and uh, we're a large church, and man, I could totally understand if there are times that it feels like, man, it's hard to keep up with all the information. Totally get that. But if you take th- those factors and maybe some others and you blend them all together, you get conditions that are perfect for rumors to take hold. And just like in your garden at your house is perfect for growing flowers and weeds, the conditions at our church are perfect for growing communication and trust, or for growing rumors and mistrust. And if we're really honest with ourselves, which I think we should be, we got some weeds growing in the garden. So what am I saying? I'm suggesting that we be a church like this. We say, because we love Jesus, and because we love each other, we're just gonna say, rumors are not good. Because all rumors do, spread fear, spread anger, and spread misinformation. And so our, I appreciate that. I have a responsibility to you as pastor to be a great communicator and to keep you informed. Our organization, our staff, we have a responsibility to give you everything that you need to know. But as a congregation, did you know that you have a responsibility as well? You have the responsibility whenever you hear rumors, Whenever you hear things that trouble you, whenever you hear things that are concerning, if you hear something, you're like, oh my goodness, if that's true, that is not good. If that's, if that's true, then we have a problem on our hands. If you hear that sort of thing, this is your responsibility, to have a conversation. And by having a conversation, what I mean is go to the people who know, go to the people who are responsible, go to the people who can help. And in my 45 trips around the sun, This is what I've learned. Email is great for scheduling and setting up a conversation, not great for having a conversation. Does that sound true? All right, awesome, 
Awesome. So this is one of the reasons we love having congregational meetings. We're going to have a congregational meeting uh, the first Wednesday night in November. I think it's November 5th, but more information uh, is coming on that. And, and uh, I hope you'll be there. We're going to talk about missions. We're going to talk about uh, things that are new. We're going to give some updates. We're going to talk about some changes that have been made. I want you to be there. I want to answer all the questions. I want to make sure we do a good job of answering all the questions that you have. I hope you'll be there. So this is just what I think we ought to do as a church. We ought to say, you know what? Rumors are no good because all they do is spread fear, anger, and misinformation. Rumors kill our ability to love each other. Conversations nurture our ability to love each other. So how are we doing with that? Can I get some thumbs up? All right, excellent, love it. So let's talk about the second one, racial tensions. And this is a subject, whenever it comes up, it can feel radioactive and it could cause people to feel really uncomfortable. And I get that. I, I don't want that to be the case here. Um, our vision statement says this, what we're aspiring to be is we want to be a church of all cultures. And I think we are well on our way. And that's been a trajectory of this church for many years, long before I ever got here. Uh, I don't know if you know this, you probably know this, but uh, every weekend in our weekend services, every continent except Antarctica is represented uh, in our congregation. And if anyone's ever been to Antarctica, let me know and I'll change how I talk about that. I think this is awesome. Here's something, that, here's an imaginary scenario that I think would just be incredible. Imagine if someone said, who's never been to Autumn Ridge, well, what kind of church is Autumn Ridge like? Like, is it a white church? Is it a black church? Is it more of a Hispanic church or an Asian church? I would love it if the person who tried to answer that was just kind of confused. It was like, I get your question. It makes sense. But you just can't reduce Autumn Ridge Church to one dominant culture. I think that would be awesome. Now, that's probably not the answer yet. But one day, it might be. Over the past 20 years, the number of evangelical churches in America, over the past 20 years, the number of evangelical churches in America that are multicultural has grown from 7% of all churches to 22% of all evangelical churches. It appears to be that that has plateaued, like maybe we're stuck there. It's even possible that that percentage is going down. Now, when I see that, it doesn't tell me that churches are racist. It doesn't tell me that churches are bad. This is what it tells me. It tells me that what we're trying to be as a church, and we're trying to live like what heaven's going to be like, it tells me that what we're trying to do as a church doesn't come naturally. And when things don't come naturally, we have to be very intentional about it. The kind of church that we're trying to be is going to take some hard work. It's good work, but it's hard work. Recently, I was reading an article uh, that was talking about this, and it referenced a survey that was done um, about this subject. And these are the two questions, two of the many questions that were asked. One was, which is a bigger problem, seeing racism where it does not exist or not seeing racism where it does exist? 72% of white evangelicals, 54% of white mainline Protestants, and 60% of white Catholics said, well, seeing racism where it doesn't exist, that's the bigger problem. 88% of black Protestants said not seeing racism where it does exist is the bigger problem. So why do I share this with you? I just thought it'd be fun to make it really awkward in here today. 
Now you got to hear me on this. I'm not saying you, I'm not saying anyone here is wrong, racist, or dumb. I'm just reminding us of something we already know. People from different cultures, different countries, different ethnicities sometimes see the exact same thing from different angles. We see the same thing from different angles. And we could be the type of people to say, well, let's figure out who's more right and who's more wrong. Or we could be the kind of people who say, hmm, my vantage point is always limited and I'm going to be incomplete without you. Now, what this represents is just one thread, one, one single thread in a much larger tapestry of racial harmony. And the kind of conversation that we're having right now is just the tiniest sliver of a conversation and a much bigger conversation. What we're doing right now is we're barely dipping our toe in the water. But if we're going to be a church of all cultures, then we have to be the kind of church where it's safe to have honest, vulnerable, discerning conversations that are free from judgment. If we were to lose our first love, we would lose our ability to navigate this. If we were to ever slide away, slide out of being a church of discernment and to slide into being a church of judgment, we'll lose our ability to walk this road together. Following Jesus, walking with Jesus comes with love, gentleness, humility, kindness, patience, being fantastic listeners. And part of me just wants to say, that doesn't seem like it comes naturally, which is okay. It comes supernaturally. We are being made new by Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God is in his followers, transforming us to be more like him. So I'm hoping that this could be our ending point today, how we respond. And this is a prayer of response. I'm going to read it. I want you just to think about it as I do. Jesus, we are still wowed by you. And in moments where we take you for granted or become impressed with ourselves, may the Holy Spirit convict us and capture our hearts again. We want to be people of discernment, not judgment. We want to be people who are compelled by our first love. Help us to have ears to hear what you want to say. Please help us to be people who are not content to know the truth, but people who joyfully submit to truth. Above all else, we want to please you. You are the only one who has words of eternal life. Could that be our prayer? Would you pray with me now? And I'm going to make that our prayer. Jesus, we are still wowed by you. In moments where I and moments where we take you for granted, in moments where I become impressed with myself, in moments where we become impressed with ourselves, may your Holy Spirit convict us. Would you capture our hearts again? We want to be people of discernment and not judgment. We want to be people who are compelled by our first love. We want to be like you. Would you help us to have ears to hear whatever it is you want to say, whatever it is you want to do in us, we are open. Please help us to be people who are not content to simply know what the truth is, but to submit to the truth and you are truth. And above all else, we want to please you. You are the only one who has 
the words of eternal life. Amen.